to remember uh, Raul and Nina as they mourn the passing of his brother Ubaldo, I guess uh, yesterday. Um, I don't have any other uh, prayer requests on my list. Do we know of others that we need to uh, need to pray about? <clears throat> Let's read from the Gospel of John chapter 14 verses 15 through 18 Jesus says if you love me keep my commandments and I will pray the father and he will give you another helper 
that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these words. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your words, and we thank you for the promise of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the comfort, for the direction, for the guidance that your Spirit provides. And we continue, God, to ask, to pray, to plead for a greater awareness of your presence, a greater awareness of your Spirit, and following your lead and doing your will that you have for us. Thank you, God, for this time to gather, to worship at your feet. Lord, bless this time for us to hear from you and to obey. Give us the strength, the wisdom, Lord, the perseverance to continue on. We, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Church of God, be saved. 
Everyone needs compassion, a love that's never failing. Let mercy fall on me. Everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness of a savior, the hope of nations. Thank you. 
Well, good morning. It is awesome to be with y'all, exactly as we've been hearing on this this day of Pentecost that the Lord has appointed. So if you would open with me, the first place that we will begin to study is in Isaiah chapter 30. If you're in the church's Bible, page 817, Isaiah chapter 30. So today is Pentecost, as we've said, known in the Old Testament as Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, and it has been 50 days since the Passover. And the Lord has a powerful word for us today rooted in in the understanding of this feast. Where we're beginning to read in Isaiah chapter 30 at this time, both of the nations of Israel and Judah were being attacked by the Assyrian army. So the northern nation of Israel would eventually be conquered by Assyria. Judah wanted to avoid this, so they would begin to broker a deal with Egypt for protection and alliance against the Assyrians. Knowing this, the prophet Isaiah will come and rebuke the nation of Judah. So let's read the first few verses here in chapter 30. Isaiah says, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel but not of me, and who devise plans but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt." So this is the Israel that was delivered during the Passover from bondage in Egypt. And because an enemy nation is scaring them a bit, they decide they are going to go back to that nation they were delivered from to seek protection and alliance. Isaiah is furious at this. So let's turn over uh, maybe a page to Isaiah thirty eighteen, and read what he writes next to them. Isaiah builds his case to make this point in 18. He says, therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you, and therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. So Isaiah is talking to this foolish nation, this place of Judah, and he says that the Lord will wait for those, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to them. Have you ever thought about that, that the Lord is indeed waiting on us? For all that we talk about waiting on the Lord, being patient for the Lord to do his thing, for him to work things out according to our plan, Isaiah tells us that the Lord is waiting on us to be gracious. Isaiah goes on to say that having mercy on them, he may be exalted. 
even in the Lord's mercy on us, it's not so we can feel better, it's that he may be exalted. He continues to say that the Lord is a God of justice, meaning that the Lord is loving and gracious and compassionate, but he is still bound by his character that is holy, that cannot enter into this relationship with sinful, rebellious ones. Finally, he closes his statement to say, blessed are those who instead wait on the Lord. Isaiah's message is remarkably appropriate for us today on Pentecost, where waiting on the Lord is the theme. This week I've done a good amount of study on this, on this idea of waiting on the Lord. I wonder if you've said that to yourself before. If you have convinced yourself that your conditions are really because you're waiting on the Lord. I often want to see what scripture says about an idea like waiting because my idea of waiting and God's idea of waiting are probably very different. In the Old Testament, there are 10 different words used to convey waiting, which is remarkable because Hebrew is a very condensed language. It has about one-tenth of the vocabulary of our English language. And there's 10 words that my New King James translates as wait. Most of the words include this simple understanding like we would think of waiting, but with variety such as inspecting or examining, sitting, remaining, dwelling, awaiting, waiting for someone, bearing, lying in wait, remaining or tarrying, to watch out or guard, and finally, silence, a quiet waiting. In the New Testament, there are at least six words that represent this same idea. And like Hebrew, they have some distinction. To expect, to await, to be eager, to wait for, to watch for. And I share this because scripture is filled with prophetic words that tell us the Lord will fulfill his promises and is good to those who wait on him. Likewise, scripture is filled with many such warnings for those who don't. I pray that today on this Pentecost that the Lord would speak to us powerfully, that we would learn from Israel's rebellion and resisting the Lord's spirit, Isaiah says. That we would desire the blessing that Isaiah says is for those who wait on the Lord. This Feast of Pentecost is also known as Shavuot. Pentecost is the Greek New Testament word for this feast, and Shavuot is the Hebrew meaning. Now we know that the Torah, the the first five books of the Bible, the law, begin with Genesis, and then there's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy really all have kind of action that is taking place at the same time. It is a combination of history and law. After Israel, after the Hebrews left Egypt, they were at Mount Sinai for nearly a year. 
and these four books explain all that God was doing in their lives. God's desire was for them to leave Sinai quickly with his word, with his commandments, and go into the promised land, yet they, they tarried there. They waited there for over a year, and then they wandered for an additional 40 years before inheriting the promised land. So what we read in these four books is an exhaustive explanation of God moving and working and giving commandments and laws and understanding and his people doing things like grumbling over manna from heaven and building a golden calf to worship other gods. We read what God is trying to do that's interrupted by their foolishness. Now I say all that because we're going to read a little bit about Pentecost that there's, there's all kind, types of explanations of that they work together but we should see that they're, they're over a period of time because God's people are doing their own thing. So first turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. If you're in the church's Bible on page 82. Exodus chapter 19. So in Exodus 19, your, your subheading may say Israel or the Hebrews at Mount Sinai. So after they left Egypt, after the Lord had delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh from oppression, he led them to Mount Sinai. And the Lord was going to meet with his people to give him his law. He was going to provide for them understanding on how to live before him and how to live in freedom. So let's read verses 4 through 7 of chapter 19. This is God speaking to Moses, and he says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my, co my covenant, you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which I shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. So Moses is going to begin to share what God is telling him and, and go on to offer the commandments of God. He's going to tell the people that they are to consecrate themselves. They're to wash themselves and be clean. And they're to gather near the mountain of Sinai to prepare to meet and hear from God. You might turn the page. We'll begin reading uh, still in chapter 19 in verse 16. It says, Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long, 
and became louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through to come to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down and spoke to the people. So there's this exchange between God and Moses, and God is saying, bring the people on up, make sure they're consecrated, lest, lest I break out against them. And Moses says, well, Lord, wait, we, we can't all come up. Your presence will destroy us. So God says, of course, you're right. And I believe this is to, to see what Moses understood about the Lord's presence, right? Moses realizes that God's presence cannot be beheld by unholy people. Yes, they'd taken a bath, they'd cleansed themselves. Yes, they were trying to prepare. But God's presence is so great that smoke and fire are coming down upon this mountain and they cannot bear it. The next thing is that we would read in chapter 20 of Exodus that God will give these commandments and speak to the people of Israel. The first mention of Pentecost, of Shavuot, of the Feast of Weeks, won't come until the next uh, few chapters later. You can turn over to Exodus 23 and we'll read where it is. Let's read verses 14 through 27 of Exodus chapter 23. It says, three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God. So a couple of things I want to point out. We've just talked about the Lord appearing on Mount Sinai and giving the commandments to his people. And then among those commandments, a few chapters later, we're told of three feasts that we're to celebrate in the year. And we're not given much of a description. And this is because God is beginning this fellowship with his people where he will give his commandments through Moses to them. It says that three feasts of the year were to celebrate. The first one it says unleavened bread. And we know that that is really uh, the feast of unleavened bread and Passover and first fruits that was given earlier in the Exodus. Then it says the feast of the harvest or first fruits. This is not the same first fruits as before. But the feast of the harvest is Shavuot, is the feast of the weeks. It is another feast that includes harvest elements. 
And the last one we're told is the Feast of Ingathering, which will be further unveiled later in Exodus and, and Leviticus as the Feast of Tabernacles. Later in Leviticus, Moses will give a fuller description of the Feast of Weeks. In Numbers 28, God's people will be told about how to offer offerings on this feast. And in Deuteronomy 16, as the law is given a second time, this feast will be further developed. So turn with me to, to Deuteronomy 16 on page 221, Deuteronomy 16. So in Deuteronomy, the law is being given again because Israel has gone back and forth, wavering from following God. And so his word is committed to them again here in the book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 16, we'll read verses 9 through 12. It says, You shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count seven weeks from the time you put the sickle to the grain. You shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of a free will offering from, from your hand, which the Lord shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger and fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and be careful to observe these statutes. Now I share all these things and we've read from all these scriptures to, to see a little bit of this picture of how the law was given at Sinai and also how God was, was slowly developing this feast for his people. See, when, when the Israelites began to follow the Lord, they really didn't know his ways. They were immature in their observance of his commandment. And so the Lord is continuing to unfold his plan through his feast and through Pentecost. So to summarize what we have learned about, about this feast here, it is one of three great pilgrimages that God told his people to celebrate. It started by them not celebrating this feast privately by themselves, but they were to celebrate it with all of Israel. Later on, as the tabernacle was built, they were to celebrate this feast in the tabernacle. And then when the temple was established in Jerusalem, it was one of the three that they were to gather in Jerusalem to celebrate. And we see that in the New Testament. This feast occurs 50 days after Passover, 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's why it's known as the Feast of Weeks. It says seven weeks, seven sevens, you shall wait to celebrate this feast. And it was primarily an agricultural festival. The, the, the Israelites lived to farm. And so the Lord was ordering this feast according to their agricultural schedule and it was celebrated at the end of the barley harvest and at the beginning of the wheat harvest 
Now, in addition to this, early on in Israel's history, rabbis determined that the timing of this feast coincided with Moses receiving the law on Mount Sinai. So though they they didn't have an inaugural first celebration of this feast, the law was given on Mount Sinai, and then they're told to begin to celebrate this feast, and according to certain days, 50 after Passover, which coincides with the 50 days after the Passover that Moses was given the law on the mountain. We'll get to why this matters here in a moment. Turn next with me to Acts chapter 2. In the church's Bible on page 1253, Acts chapter 2. So in Acts chapter 2, we know that this is the place where the disciples were waiting in the upper room and the Spirit is going to be poured out on them. Notice the things that we read in verses 1 through 4. It says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat on each of one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now this is just a a small uh, sliver of the story that happens on Pentecost, and we'll read more in a few moments. But what I want to point out to you is that when we think of this Feast of Pentecost, or this Feast of Weeks, Most focus on the New Testament fulfillment of this feast, of the Spirit being poured out. And that is absolutely true. But the Lord has drawn me to some amazing parallels between his law being given on Sinai, on this feast, and the Spirit being given in the upper room on this feast as well. There's five things I want to mention. First is that both events, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai and the Spirit being poured out, both of these happened on mountains. The law is given on Mount Sinai, and where the disciples were in this upper room was Jerusalem. Jerusalem is known as Mount Zion. In fact, Jerusalem is on a, a group of mountains, a mountain cluster. So both of these hangs are happening on mountaintops. The second thing is that both of these events happen to people who God was saving. To the Hebrews, saving them out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, and the disciples and followers of Jesus who he had been unfolding his plan of salvation and which was perfected in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So to both of these groups that are being saved 
are given the word of God and the spirit of God. The next thing is that that both of these events represent a gift. See, to the Hebrews, God's law was not to torment them with rules and regulations, but it was his merciful gift they might know how to follow him, how to stay out of sin and from trouble. To Jesus' followers, God was giving the Spirit, which is a helper to honor Jesus' deeper explanation of the law. Both of these events that we've read about have similar signs and symbols. We've read of, of a rushing wind, of a great fire, and of smoke. God's presence was sent to both of them. Finally, both of these events include a mixed multitude of people. In Exodus, we're told that many left Egypt with the Hebrews. In Acts, we're told that there were people from every nation, tribe, and tongue under heaven. The Lord allowed me to see these parallels because it is is pivotal that we don't focus just on this understanding of the Spirit, which many do, and say, oh, wonderful. We have God's Spirit to enliven in us the right thing to do, but ignoring that His Word was poured out on His people 1,200 years before to the day. What the Spirit is doing is enlivening the Word and the truth that is to be in God's people. Also, so that we can recognize the distinction between those receiving God's word. In the Old Testament, we have these Israelites, burdened by their own selfishness and grumpiness and complaining. And in the New Testament, we have these disciples waiting for an undetermined amount of time on the promise that Jesus had offered. I want to turn and look at a few of these places of the Israelites to give us a picture. Turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 11, and the church's Bible on page 163. Numbers 11. Page 163. The book of Numbers is called so because it records several occasions of numbers and people being counted, but the Hebrew title for this book means wilderness, which is a pretty fair assessment of where Israel was in a wilderness. This entire book of Numbers, it tells the story of when Israel left Mount Sinai after the law had been given a first and a second time, they would leave Sinai and they would wander. And it describes their experiences as as a nation. It it shows that when they were obedient to to God, they they, um, enjoyed his blessing and protection. But when they were disobedient, this brought his judgment. 
I want to look at just a few examples that we can quickly read to see the heart's desire of Israel. Read in chapter 11 with me, verse 1. It says, Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it and his anger was aroused. When the people complained, this doesn't give a single instance, but suggested that their complaining was ongoing. And as it was ongoing, it aroused the anger of the Lord. Then turn down to, still in chapter 11, verse 6, excuse me, verse 4 through 6. It says, Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except the manna before our eyes. These are people who were delivered from bondage and now complain for the bread God had given, wishing they had onions, leeks, and fish. Wishing to go back to Israel in bondage for some fish. Turn over to chapter 14, just a few pages. In 14, we'll read from verses 1 through 4. It says, So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Again, the people who had seen the seas parted and the glory of God revealed on Mount Sinai. Let us return to Egypt, they cry. Turn over to chapter 16, a few pages over. In 16, we'll read verses 1 through 3. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Datham and Abiram, the sons of Elibab, on the son and On, the son of Palath, the sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with some sons of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregations, representatives from the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You Take too much upon yourself, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. So now we have men of renown, it says. 250 men who think they can do it better than God's anointed Moses, who God has been using. They don't really like the way that Moses, you know, gives them the law and helps them to see that the man of God has provided is God's saving food to them. So they gather up and say, we want another leader. We can do it ourselves. Then read on and also in chapter 16 and verse 41 with me. 
41 says, On the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. Now it happened when the congregation gathered against Moses and Aaron, they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting, and suddenly the cloud covered it, and the glory of God appeared. Is that what I want to read? Yeah, I wanted to read just 41. So as a result of this, the entire nation of Israel is now coming before Moses and Aaron and complaining against them. Complain is used many, many, many times in numbers to describe the heart of those in Israel. Next read with me in chapter 20 verses 2 through 5. It says, Now there was no water for the congregation and they gathered together against Moses and Aaron and the people contended with Moses and spoke saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? Is it, is not a pla- it is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. Now they're telling Moses they wish they could have died in Egypt because the place that the Lord has brought them hasn't had all the things that they long for from Egypt. Last place we'll read is in chapter 21, verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food nor water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. This is the heart of Israel. God had provided manna. He had provided water from a rock. And now the people complain they don't like it and they want to go back to Egypt. There are a lot of angry, selfish, and grumpy people in Israel. Huh. And if we read these passages in their entirety, we would see that each of these stories highlight a rebellion that started for different reasons. Here's what I think is important for us to glean here. Rebellion. All rebellion doesn't just move us away from God's grace and his mercy. It doesn't just draw us into a little bit of sin. Rebellion wants to go back to Egypt. Rebellion wants to take us back in bondage. While we might struggle to see ourselves in the Israelites thinking, no, Lord, surely not I, I would never say such things. These are given as examples, as a mirror for us to reflect. On the other hand, those who receive the Holy Spirit and acts were doing so in a different manner. Turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. On page 1219, 
in Luke 24, this is the last message that Jesus gives his disciples, according to Luke. It comes 40 days after Jesus was at the Passover meal and crucified. And during this time, Jesus appeared to his disciples and he gave them greater understanding of what, of what his death and his resurrection meant. Let's read in verses 44 through 49. It says, And he said to him, them, this is Jesus, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they may, might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So verse 49 tells us three very important things. First, it tells us about the promise of the Father. Jesus has been talking about this with his disciples throughout his ministry, and he recaps again what has long been awaited from the prophets. Among them, Ezekiel says in chapter 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. The next thing that Jesus tells his disciples is that they will be endued and clothed with power from on high. Jesus had been telling his disciples this as well throughout his ministry. And Joe read from John chapter 14 where Jesus tells them, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Even in Jesus' message then, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, but he does not leave out his law. He combines the two. He says, if you keep my commandments, I will send the fulfillment of that on Pentecost. The helper will give you understanding to obey my word completely. The third thing that Jesus says, and this is where I want to focus, is for them to wait in Jerusalem. He says there in the last part of 49, he says, tarry in the city of Jerusalem. The word here it translated tarry may be understood several ways. Stay, remain, wait. It is a word that means to make to sit down. As if Jesus was using his hands to gesture to the disciples, you are to stay in Jerusalem, do not leave town. What makes this verb unique is first that it's an imperative word. So Jesus was commanding them to stay, urging with them to stay. It's also a fancy word that means that it requires them to receive this commandment. 
See, God's commandments do nothing for us if we don't receive them. But Jesus is begging and pleading that they receive this commandment, that they tarry in Jerusalem. Now turn over a few pages to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, page 1252. Luke is the author of both the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts. So the account that we'll read here in verse, excuse me, in chapter 1 is very similar because Luke wrote both of them. Read read together with me Luke chapter 1 verses 4 through 7. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them, this is Jesus, not to depart from Jerusalem. But wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For truly John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when he had come, when they had come together, and they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put under his own authority. Now, the first thing I want to point out here is Luke's use of this word wait in verse 4. In verse 4, Luke is recalling Jesus' instruction to them that we read in Luke 24. It says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father. Now the reason this is important is Luke uses a different word now than he used before. Before he used this word that means to make, to sit down, and now he uses the word perimeno, which means to remain, to abide. The reason this is important is because I think Luke is stating what he remembers from Jesus. It's not the word Jesus used that's important. It's what he meant. See, waiting to Jesus means don't go anywhere. Rest quietly, peacefully. Not collaborating among yourselves what you think God is doing or meaning, but wait before God for his spirit. Await the promise from the Father for power on high for the Holy Spirit to be poured out on you. So what happens next is that they do wait on the Lord. They went back to the upper room where they had had the Passover 40 days before. And along with another 120 in total, they waited for another 10 days. They didn't know for certain that this would happen 10 days later. I think they would have waited 10 years. But the disciples and the followers of God heeded his word to wait on him. Acts 2 tells us that on the day of Pentecost, when it had come, there was a rushing wind and it filled the house where they were. It filled them with the Holy Spirit. Afterwards, this group of confused, this group of weak Doubting, selfish, and sometimes shallow followers would be transformed to do exactly what Jesus said they would do. That they would be his witnesses, giving testimony through preaching, through healing, and delivering all for God's glory. And we read in the entire book of Acts about these people that were transformed 
by waiting on the Lord. This day that we celebrate today, Pentecost, is a reminder of what waiting for the Lord is meant for. I pray that we don't waste this opportunity today to receive from the Lord. That we learn from the mistakes of the Israelites, who in selfishness and pride allowed to steal what God had offered them. Instead, that we would follow the disciples who waited on the Lord as we inspect and examine ourselves, as we watch out and guard, as we remain and eagerly await to be approved patient and obedient for God's purposes and promises. I want to read one last scripture with you that we began in. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 30, page 817. Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah 30 to me is is really a a summary of the gospel that Isaiah begins and says, don't go back to Egypt. And then he says that God longs to be gracious to us, but then he unpacks that a little bit more. Let's begin reading in 18, we'll read through 26. Therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you, and therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner any more. But your eyes shall see your teachers, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left, you will also defile the covering of your images of silver and the ornament of your molded images of gold. You will throw them away as an unclean thing. You will say, Get away. Then he will give you the rain for your seed with which you sow the ground, and the bread of the increase of the earth, it will be fat and plentiful. In that day your cattle will feed in large pastures. Likewise, the oxen and the young donkeys that work the ground will eat cured fodder, which has been winnowed with the shovel and fan. There will be on every high mountain, on every high hill, rivers and streams of waters in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold. In the light of seven days, in that day the Lord binds up the bruise of his people and heals the stroke of their wound. What Isaiah is describing is the salvation of our God for those who wait on him. Every pasture will have water. There will be brightness of sun for the harvest. He will restore the things that have been 
devastated by sin. Jesus has promised his spirit, his direction, and his truth for those who would wait on him. I pray it would be so for us. Amen. Yes. 
Thank you, God, for saving me.